When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phinuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84 She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Mary Candlemas. Yes, Candlemas. It's an unusual day. It's a unique, often overlooked day on the church calendar, but it's one of the oldest feast days dating back to the 4th century, starting in the Holy Land. This day commemorates the presentation of our Lord as we read in the Gospel text the purification of Mary, which is another long story. You can read all about that in Leviticus. But it comes on the 40th day after Christmas, and in some Christian traditions, it's been the day to take down Christmas decorations. Good news for us at Unity, who still have the nativity scene out in the foyer, but that's beside the point. But Candlemas is also unique because it does pull us back to Christmas for just a day. This gospel reading comes just one verse after the nativity story in Luke. We've barely left Mary treasuring and pondering, and we've barely bid farewell to the shepherds who go on their way praising and rejoicing. And even more, this Candlemas Day, which was actually yesterday, it worked better last night, but uh, this Candlemas Day pulls together the entire Christmas and Epiphany season with this image of light. At Christmas, right, Jesus comes as the light of the world. And at Epiphany, he's revealed as the light for all people. 
And then today, Simeon praises the newborn Messiah as a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of God's people. Candlemas gives us a lot to reflect on. And this day reminds us yet again of God's great, unfailing love for God's people. Now, our first reading comes from Malachi, and I'm willing to bet that not many of us are familiar with Malachi. I kept Googling Micah, for instance, as I was researching this sermon. It's only 55 verses wedged right between the Old and New Testaments in your Bible. And it's probably not the most coherent book either. It's so short, and we can't really make much sense of it. It's kind of all over the place. And it really seems like it's not the most studied book among biblical scholars based on the lack of things to say about it that I, that I could find. But one article that I did find, written of all people by a seminary professor of mine, says that Malachi is sort of like God's valentine to us. Now, when you read Malachi, it's not exactly the stuff of candy heart messages, but it kind of makes sense. After all, the book begins with this line, I have loved you, says the Lord. Or perhaps a better, more simple translation, just, I love you. So from the very beginning, Malachi begins with a reminder of God's love. Now fast forward just a couple of chapters to the verses that we just read today, and the dialogue has shifted a little bit. The people lodge a complaint against God. Why do those who do evil appear to get away with it. Where is the God of justice, they cry out. Now that's a little ironic, because if you actually think that they wanted God to pay attention to injustice, they would have to be the first in line to own up to it. Just look at the pages of the Hebrew Bible. It's mistake after mistake, and screw up after screw up, and God constantly having to bail them out. But God's response to this accusation against him? A messenger who will purify the people with a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. Now, it's not pleasant to think about being burned by hot fire or hot sauce, as it were. And I know enough of dabbling in soap making, the dangers of the improper handling of lye that goes into soap. But this kind of purification, as another biblical scholar points out, reveals the high value placed on that which is being purified, like gold and silver, the text tells us. And I think that's the larger point here, that God loves the people too much to let them keep going on committing these acts of evil and injustice and violence against each other. God loves God's people too much that God intervenes to put an end to it. God intervenes again, another second chance. And so maybe my seminary professor was on to something. Maybe Malachi is sort of like God's valentine to us, as weird and incomprehensible as that might seem. Malachi begins and ends with this affirmation of God's unfailing love for God's people. Speaking of weird moments, that scene in the temple in Luke, 
It starts off so innocent and tender. Simeon praising God for this long-awaited Messiah that he finally gets to see. And then suddenly to Mary, this kid is going to pierce your soul. He's going to be responsible for many rising and falling. Maybe not the best choice of words to a new young family, but it kind of makes sense in context. It's a sign of things to come in Luke's gospel. It even points us back to Mary's Magnificat, Mary's song that we heard during Advent about the lifting up of the lowly and bringing down of the powerful. And then just last week, which is actually a couple chapters after this scene in Luke, we hear about Jesus' first sermon in his hometown in Nazareth, where he talks about bringing good news to the poor and release to the captives and sight to the blind and freedom to the oppressed. Jesus' ministry is going to shake things up in Luke's gospel. He's going to subvert and challenge the status quo, and it's going to take him to the very margins of society, to heal the unclean and the foreigner and the demon-possessed, to associate with all those that society has deemed less than. Time and again in Luke's gospel, Jesus is all about demonstrating God's expansive love for all people, even if that means turning things upside down and shaking them up. In Malachi, those who are least deserving of God's love and second chances are met by a God who refuses to give up on them. And in Luke's gospel today, Simeon perceives that those who are in the least expected places and circumstances are going to be met by a Messiah who constantly reaches beyond respectable and accepted social boundaries. What does it feel like to be loved that much? One of Malachi's primary concerns when you read the whole book has to do with how the people are worshiping by offering imperfect sacrifices. And we know that Jesus wasn't exactly born into an ideal religious climate either, where religious practices had been corrupted by an elite few at the expense of the many. Now, we might not practice ritual sacrifice anymore. Thank God, it's a little messy. And we're probably don't, we don't really do the same kinds of religious practices as a first century Jew living in Palestine. But worship is still at the heart of what we do. Every week we gather here as a community of flawed people who are trying our best. But we're only fooling ourselves if we say that there's nothing that gets in the way of that. Distractions outside these walls that compete for our time and our attention. Even things within these walls, disagreements and decision-making and details that often harbor disagreements and resentments over petty things that divide us. What needs purifying and piercing in our own context? What prevents us from being able to experience the fullness of that kind of love in community? On the other hand, the church, at its best, thrives in community. Here at Unity, worship is celebration. Our adult education and small group opportunities 
are vibrant and renew our lives, our bodies, and souls, and our partnerships in Waukesha County and Milwaukee and beyond share that sense of community with the world. It's in community that we experience God's love, the unfailing power to restore us to wholeness and heal the weary soul. So Candlemas is more than just one more chance to take down your Christmas decorations, though it's probably good to do that if you haven't already. But more importantly, it's a day to remember with Malachi and Simeon and Anna, the unfailing love of God that will not and does not ever, ever give up on us. And to remember the far-reaching love of a Messiah that goes beyond respectable and expected social boundaries. What does it feel like to be loved that much? This is the best way that I know to experience God's love in community. This is what it feels like to be loved that much. Thanks be to God.